Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Welcome in to another episode of Nature Reliance Media. I'm your host, Tracy Tremble. I found this article that detailed the life of a young boy and his family and his migration into the wilderness back in the early 1800s. And the article fascinated me that a young boy brought up under the conditions that we're going to go over that the article displayed out could find a path to become, of all things, an attorney. The article, I'm getting ready to read you the article. It's not all that long, but it's probably 80% of the article and 20% me. There was a few sections in the article that I had to rewrite. One, because of the language and how they wrote it, just it was very difficult to follow. And then there were a couple paragraphs in the article that I just had to totally rewrite because of the language that they used. Some of the words they used to describe the people and the locals, uh, I just actually wasn't comfortable reading. So probably 80% of the article, 20% me. And I just found it interesting. I hope you do too. And we let's jump into the article. His ancestors could be traced back with tolerable certainty through five generations to England and being of typical descent. The great-great-great-grandfather, Mordecai, migrated to Berks County, Pennsylvania, after initially settling in Massachusetts. A hint of the cause of this move may be found in the statement that he belonged to the persecuted sect of Quakers. John, a son of Mordecai, settled in Rockingham County, Virginia. His family seemed to have a strong liking for frontier life, individual members of the family in every generation moving westward to keep pace with the tide of civilization. In 1781, while the last events of the War for Independence were in progress, a son of John moved into Kentucky and took up a tract of government land, some 500 acres. It was part of the territory comprised in Daniel Boone's survey, the famous Kentucky pioneer. At this date, Kentucky was included within the limits of jurisdiction of Virginia. It had been made a county by the legislature of that state in 1776, but failed to become an independent territory until 1790. In 1775, Daniel Boone built a fort at Boonesboro on the Kentucky River, and it was not far from this site 
that the attorney's grandfather located his claim and put up a rude shelter of his family. The pioneers who were now penetrating the wilderness of Kentucky and clearing small scattered spaces around their humble dwellings had not only to contend with the wild forces of nature and defend themselves against the beasts of the forest, but they were subject to attack from hostile Indians. This region, probably from its beauty and the abundance of wild game, had been a favorite hunting ground of the Cherokees and other powerful tribes. The settlers were haunted by terrors of their stealthy foe, and at home or abroad, kept their guns ready for instant use by night and by day. Many a hard battle was fought between the Indians and the pioneers before the latter obtained secure possession of the state. Many unguarded woodsman was shot down without warning while busy about his necessary work. The attorney's grandfather fell victim to the murderous Indians within a year or two after arriving in the new state. The grandfather's sons, Mordecai, Josiah, and Thomas, were witness of the shocking tragedy. Thomas, the attorney's father, was in the field with his father when the savages suddenly burst upon them. Mordecai and Josiah were nearby in the forest. Mordecai, startled by the shot, saw his father fall and, running to the cabin, seized a loaded rifle, rushed to one of the loopholes, cut through the logs of the cabin, saw the Indian who had fired. He had just caught the boy, Thomas, and was running toward the forest. Pointing the rifle through the logs and aiming at a silver medal on the breast of the Indian, Mordecai fired. The Indian fell, and Thomas, springing to his feet, ran to the open arms of his mother at the cabin door. From this time throughout his life, Mordecai was the mortal enemy of the Indians and, it is said, sacrificed many in revenge for the murder of his father. It was in the presence of such dangers crossing every step that Thomas spent his boyhood. His father's murder before his baby eyes was like a baptism of blood. He was born in 1778, so he could not have been much more than four years of age on that fateful day when the yell of the fierce Indians chilled the blood of the startled group, and in one swift moment his father lay dead beside him. Vengeance had been exacted by his resolute brother. So far as they are known, the attorney's family were all marked characters. Some recollections related to Mordecai after he had reached manhood give a welcome glimpse of the boy who exhibited such coolness and daring on the occasion which cost his father's life. He was naturally a man of considerable genius. He was a man of great humor, and it would almost make you laugh to look at him. Mordecai was quite a storyteller, and in this the attorney to be resembled his uncle. Thomas was now 28 years of age before taking a wife, his choice falling on a young girl of 23, Nancy Hanks. She was of English descent, like her husband, and her ancestors had followed, like his, in the path of immigration from Virginia to Kentucky. The two were married in Springfield, Kentucky. The young couple lived for a time in Elizabethtown, and after the birth of their first child, moved to Rock Springs Farm in Nolan Creek. It was a lonely spot, a strange and unlikely place for the birth of one to become an attorney. Yet here, in the early year of 1809, the attorney-to-be came into this world. A third child was born later but died in infancy. The young couple was now a family of four, the father Thomas, the mother Nancy, a daughter, and a son that would overcome the wilderness upbringing to become an attorney one day. Thomas was a rough, illiterate, and thriftless man with a peaceful, brave, social, and kind disposition. He was short with a compact frame with dark, coarse hair, gray eyes, brown complexion, and brawny strength. 
which his son inherited. The mother was cast in a finer mold and, according to trustworthy accounts, was a woman whose gentle instincts and lovely virtues would have adorned any station. She is said to have been beautiful in her youth, with brunette hair, regular features, and soft, sparkling hazel eyes. Her friends spoke of her as being a person of marked and decided character. She was unusually intelligent, reading all books she could obtain. She was a woman of deep religious feelings, of the most exemplary character, and most tenderly and affectionately devoted to her family. Her home indicated a degree of taste and a love of beauty exceptional in the wild settlement in which she lived. Judging from her early death, it is probable that she was of a physique less hardy than that of most of those whom she was surrounded. But in spite of this, she had been reared where the very means of existence were to be obtained by the constant struggle. She had learned to use the rifle and the tools of the backwoods farmer, as well as the distaff, the cards, and the spinning wheel. She could not only kill the wild game of the woods, but she could also dress it, make of the skins clothes for her family, and prepare the flesh for food. Hers was a strong, self-reliant spirit, which commanded the respect and the love of the rugged people among whom she lived. The tender and reverent spirit of her son, and the melancholy of his disposition, he no doubt inherited from his mother. He never ceased to cherish the memory of her life and teaching. Her death and the sad and solemn rites of the funeral made an impression on the son's mind as lasting as life. She had found time, amidst her weary toil and the hard struggle of her busy life, not only to teach him to read and write, but to impress upon him that love of truth and justice, that perfect integrity and reverence for God, for which he was noted for his entire life. These virtues were ever associated in his mind with the most tender love and respect for his mother. It was said that he would always look back to her with unspeakable affection. Long after her sensitive heart and weary hands had crumbled into dust and had climbed the life again in forest flowers, he would comment, All that I am, or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. A spirit of restlessness, a love of adventure, a longing for new scenes, and possibly the hope of improving his conditions led Thomas in the fall of 1816 to abandon the Rock Spring Farm and begin life afresh in wilds of southern Indiana. The farm was disposed of, their few personal possessions were packed upon a couple horses, and the little household set out for the long and painful journey to their new home beyond the Ohio River. Their march, leading through an unbroken country, was beset with difficulties from the beginning. Often the travelers were obliged to cut their own road as they went. With the resolution of veteran pioneers, they toiled on sometimes being able to pick their way for a long distance without chopping and then coming to a standstill in consequence of dense forest. Several days were occupied in going 18 miles. It was a difficult, frustrating, trying journey, and the attorney said that he never passed through a harder experience than he did in going from Thompson's Ferry to Spencer County, Indiana. The young boy and one-day attorney, who is represented as bearing a manful share of his labors and fatigue of this arduous expedition, and who exercised his strength and skill in felling trees and clearing a track through the wilderness, and lent a willing hand in every needful service, was only seven years old. But he was unusually large and strong for his age, and already accustomed to use of an axe and rifle, thus being the practical education of a child reared in the backwoods. 
The immediate duty of the immigrants after reaching their final camping ground was to provide a structure which should protect them from the weather. A shanty was quickly built of poles and enclosed on three sides, the fourth remaining open. This served as a home during the first year when a more comfortable cabin was built on a pleasant site. The landscape was beautiful, the soil rich, and in a short time, some land was cleared and a crop of corn and vegetables raised. The struggle for life and its few comforts in this wilderness was a very hard one, and none but those of the most vigorous constitutions could succeed. The trials and hardships of clearing, breaking up, and subduing the soil and establishing a home so far away from the necessities of life taxed the strength and endurance of all to the utmost. Bears, deer, and other sorts of wild game were abundant and contributed largely to the support of the family. The official record shows that on the 18th of October, 1817, Thomas entered a quarter section of government land. This probably includes the place where he originally settled, which was 18 miles north of the Ohio River and within a mile and a half of the present village of Gentryville. After the permanent log home was constructed, others followed and settled in, including aunts, uncles, and cousins. One uncle, Dennis Hanks, a relative of the young boy's mother, claims to have taught the young lad how to read, write, and cipher. Uncle Dennis, as he was called, but actually a cousin to the boy, said that his mother taught him his letters and confirmed that if ever there was a good woman on earth, she was one, a true Christian of the Baptist Church. But she died in 1818, which was soon after arriving and left him without a teacher, for his father could not read nor write. His uncle didn't know much, but he did his best. As to the materials with which the boy learned to write, Uncle Dennis says, when I quote, Sometimes he would write with a piece of charcoal or a point of a burnt stick on a fence or on the floor. We got a little paper at the country store, and I made ink out of blackberry briar root and a little coppers in it. It was black, but the coppers would eat the paper after a while. I made his first pen out of a turkey buzzard feather, for we had no geese in those days. After he learned to write, he was scrawling his name everywhere. Sometimes he'd write it on the white sand down by the creek bank and leave it till the waves would blot it out, unquote. It seems from Uncle Dennis that the young boy didn't take to books eagerly in the beginning as he described it. We had to hire him at first, but when he got onto it, it was the old story. We had to pull the sow's ear to get her to the trough and pull her tail to get her away from it. He read a great deal and had a wonderful memory. Never forgot anything. His first reading book was the Webster Speller. When I got him through that, I only had a copy of the Indiana Statutes. Then he got a hold of a book. I can't reckon the name of it. It told a yarn about a feller and, and another that sailed a flatboat up to a rock. And, and the rock was magnetized and they drawn the nails out of the boat. And I don't know, they got to dunking or drowned or something. I forget. The lad would lay on the floor with a chair under his head and laugh over them stories by the hour. I told him they was likely lies from end to end, but he learned to read right well in them. I later borrowed for him the life of Washington and the speeches of Henry Clay. They had a powerful influence on him. He told me later in life he wanted to live like Washington. Now at 15 and hitting his growth, the teenager grew to just over six feet tall. Uncle Dennis said he was tall, lathy, and gangly. Not much appearance, not handsome, not ugly, but peculiar. 
Dennis stated. He was this kind of feller. If a man rode up on a horseback, he would be the first one out, up on that fence, asking questions. I was ten years older, but I couldn't wrestle him down. His legs was too long, and I couldn't throw him. And my, how he could chop. His axe would flash and a bite into the sugar tree or a sycamore, and down it would come. If you heard him felling trees in the clearing, you would say there were three men at work. But he was never sassy or quarrelsome. I've seen him walk into crowds of rowdies and tell them some yarn and bust them all up laughing. It was the same when he was a lawyer. All eyes were on him. Wherever he was, yep, there was something peculiar, something about him. Early in his life, the attorney wasn't a religious man. He was a moral man, though. Never went to frolics, never drank liquor, never used tobacco, never swore. Later in his life, he became more religious. But the Bible always puzzled him, especially the miracles, and he would often ask others to explain their thoughts on the scriptures. His father and mother, however, were strongly religious with the Baptist faith. Whenever services were held in the log building about a mile distance, which passed for a church, Thomas, his wife, and their two kids were there. It has been told that the teenager would return from church, put a box in the middle of the cabin floor, and stand on it, repeating the sermon word for word. The reputation which the boy left behind, even as a young man, was one of a strong desire to learn and his passion for books, which he was not able to obtain. He read everything he could find. It may have been that this deprivation of books and the means of learning threw him upon his own resources and led him into those modes of thought of quaint and apt illustration of logical reasoning so unique to him. He was one of a few about in the vicinity who could read and write. He was noted for his kindness to everyone, and his services were frequently drawn upon by the settlers to write their letters, a favor he always cheerfully rendered. As a young man, when court was in session, he was a frequent attendant, as often as he could be spared from the labors of the farm, and especially when a lawyer by the name of John A. Breckenridge was to appear in any case. Mr. Breckenridge was the foremost lawyer in that region, widely famed as an advocate in criminal cases. Doing his chores in the morning, he would walk to Boonville, the county seat of Warwick County, 17 miles away, to view the court sessions and especially love Mr. Breckenridge speaking. He would then return the 17 miles in time to complete his evening chores before dark. He would repeat this trip day after day after day, and Mr. Breckenridge soon came to know him. Years after the young man had become an attorney himself and rose to the pinnacle position he would become known for, the same John A. Breckenridge entered his office, making eye contact with a slight pause and a nod of the head to show respect. Mr. Breckenridge said, Mr. President, you won't remember me, and that's okay. The now-grown man, who was raised in some of the harshest conditions anyone could, who was a mix of both his father and mother, who had a strong desire to read and learn, who displayed moral character even as a young person, was now President of the United States. President Lincoln eyed him sharply for a moment, then quickly replied with a smile, You're John A. Breckenridge. I used to walk 34 miles a day to hear you plead law in Boonville, and listening to your speeches at the bar first inspired me with a determination to be a lawyer. I had many thoughts reading this article and writing up for this podcast, and I hope it gives you some thoughts. But I think of the harsh conditions of, and how Mr. Lincoln found a path for his life beyond his childhood. I find it remarkable that he overcame the restraints of wilderness life in the 1800s to become president, quite frankly. 
It made me think how we may never know the influences we have on others. I'm sure Mr. Breckinridge never knew of his impact until that day he walked into the White House. Mr. Lincoln's mother was only with him for about nine years before her death. And look at the impact she had on the young boy and the influence that stayed with him for a lifetime and arguably saved the nation from destruction. What about Uncle Dennis, doing the best he could to teach a young Abraham Lincoln to read, write, and cipher, and later put energy into getting him books to read? I think of how the smallest of details can change history as we know it, with one well-placed and timely bullet fired by Mordecai Lincoln that fell the Indian in the field. It allowed his younger brother Thomas, Abraham Lincoln's father, to live his life as is and bring the future president into the world. What if the chores were too great and too many for a young Abraham to walk and listen to someone like Mr. Breckenridge? Would he have found inspiration somewhere else? Maybe, maybe not. And the most puzzling to me, are individuals like President Lincoln just destined to become who they are? Do these type of people overcome whatever circumstances, no matter what, to feel that path of destiny? I don't know. But I hope you've enjoyed this news article written about the early life of President Abraham Lincoln. Now, I'm not sure if all the details are accurate and just how true the article is, but that's the way it was written on November 23rd, 1899 in the National Tribute. Come on, join in. Let's learn together. That wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blinds School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliant School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.